Today's episode is sponsored by the NBA and their quest to advance the game of basketball, grow the community, and impact culture. The league celebrates its teams, players, and fans across the past, present, and future as part of its 75th anniversary season. That's game highlights pivotal moments on court and beyond, from iconic plays and arenas to the impact players have in the community. That's the NBA. That's game. Like in the NBA Finals when the Bucks had their backs against the wall. Drew Holiday steals the ball, pushes the break. Alley hooped to Giannis for an iconic slam. Seals game five and the eventual title. That's the NBA. That's game. This is more than just basketball. It's what connects us all and keeps us coming back for more. That's the NBA. That's game. Welcome to the podcast. I am Joe Posnanski and uh, very excited this week. Really excited this week. Uh, a man who needs no introduction, uh, so I'm, I will give him none. Uh, Bob Costas with us. Bob, welcome. Thank you, Joe. And for once, I'm talking to someone who actually backs up the opening statement. A man who needs no introduction. <laughs> because usually what follows, a man who needs no introduction. And then a long list oh. of my boring biography. So thank you for actually being true to your word. When, and, and it's so interesting that people do that all the time. And there's almost nobody who gets introduced anymore, it seems, at dinners or in big events or anything like that, that doesn't get the he needs no introduction, she needs no introduction. Everybody right. gets that starting point. So unless you're willing to go all out and say no introduction, I'm not even going to try it. I, I don't understand the point of it. You and me both. <laughs> Excellent. So we are uh, uh, we are here in the middle, well, not in the middle, but closing in on the middle of spring training. So I think we're going to start this puppy with a little bit of baseball talk, and then we're just going to see where it goes because this, okay. this, this thing has no form. What is sort of your, at this point uh, in, your, in your life as a baseball fan, as a lifelong baseball fan, Mm -hmm. Where do you where do you stand on spring training? Like how the spring training does do you get a thrill out of spring training or is it basically see on this show Michael and I Michael Shore is our normal co-host mm -hmm. and Michael and I often have the same conversation which is you know spring training is kind of overrated it's like fun at the beginning but then it's it lasts forever it feels like the season's never going to start most of these games like you only get to see the players you care about for two innings or something like that. Um, how's you, what is your feeling about spring training? Well, everything's different this year, even though it's moving slowly towards something that will resemble normal, it's different and spring training, which the players for a long time have said lasts too long. Yeah. It may make sense to have it last this long this time around sure. because there's more to sort out. Even pitchers who pitched last year, they didn't pitch the normal seasonal load. We have no idea how player A, as opposed to player B, in this case, pitcher A and B, will react to getting their arm into shape to go longer, if we're talking about starters, or to make multiple appearances over the course of a long season, if we're talking about bullpen guys. So there's a lot more to find out. And you've got players coming off 
60 game samples, which may be misleading. So it's not just prospects or new acquisitions, even some of your own players, you need to get a better gauge on them than you might've had on November 1st of last year when the world series ended. So I don't have any problem with it. The other part is this spring training used to really give me that butterfly in the stomach feeling when I was there, I used to go every year to spring training every year. I take my kids with me if they were on spring break or when they were too young to be in school, go down there, rent a house in Florida, see sometimes two spring training games in a day, a day game and a night game. You know how those it's even more true in Arizona that they're in a tight cluster. But in Florida, if you know, if you're willing to move around a little bit, you could see half the teams in the major leagues and the atmosphere is relaxed. Now, this is different from a media guy's standpoint than a fan, but the atmosphere is relaxed. I can remember sitting on lawn chairs in between Red Shane Deans and Whitey Herzog watching spring training games in the 80s and just talking baseball, me mostly listening and absorbing the kind of offhanded wisdom I was getting from those guys. So I loved the atmosphere of spring training. I loved going to a Cardinal Met game at Al Lang Field and then going to the hurricane restaurant on the beach and running into Keith Hernandez and Dave Madigan at the next table. You know, I I love that whole atmosphere. And from the standpoint of fans, even those who don't have that kind of advantage of access, a lot of them plan their schedules around it, their vacations around spring training. If they're big baseball fans and you see them sitting in the stands and it is spring, they've gotten out of their own winter environments. They're in the sun, and it's more the atmosphere of baseball than the specifics of the game that draws them to that. So I, I don't think that feeling is completely gone. I just think it's different and somewhat in eclipse now because of COVID circumstances, but it will return. I hope so. I mean, I, I think there are two points to be made. One that I want to get back to, which is how do we treat the 2020 season going forward? Because it's uh, I think that that what you are seeing is a lot of people who are treating 2020 as if it was a full season and, and we learned a lot. And, and of course we didn't, but we'll, but let's get back to that. You, you make the point. I went as a fan uh, to spring training the first time in the eighties around that time that, that you were, you were going Mm -hmm. regularly. And, you know, I'm again, I mean, I I don't want to sound like old guy. Nothing is better. There's so much that's better now about the way spring training is run, but that intimacy even as a fan who had no access whatsoever, mm-hmm. uh, I think that's kind of gone, or at least, or at least, it is not what it used to be. Well, spring training has become a bigger business, yeah. over the last generation. New spring ballparks in Florida and in Arizona—they've realized that there's money-making possibilities there. But I still think that, relatively speaking, there's yes. greater intimacy at spring training than in normal regular season circumstances. No question. No question. I just, and maybe I'm just over romanticizing it a little bit, which I, I um, want to do at times, but um, I can remember I went to, you know, back when the Orioles played in Miami and I went to games and it felt to me, at least in my memory. And, and I, again, I could be fooling myself that you would be like literally talking to Eddie Murray when he was in the on deck circle, you know, oh, that, definitely. Like, I mean, and that, that part of it, it is definitely more intimate than it is at a regular season game. If you can go out, it's still so much fun. I am not trying to in any way knock that point. But 
that part of it, it's there are more people now, and and it does not feel like it's it's not quite like that. You know, it was something else that comes to mind when you mention the Orioles training in Miami and talk about a ramshackle ballpark. Yes. yes. <laughs> so which I guess had its own charm if you could disregard the rats that were probably running around <laughs> in the bowels of the stadium. But uh, something you had before expansion upon expansion, I'm sure it still exists to some extent, but it's been diminished. You would find pockets of fans in Florida and in Arizona, not snowbirds, but people who lived there in Florida and in Arizona who rooted for the team before there was a Tampa Bay Rays or Miami Marlins or Arizona D-backs. They would root for the team that trained closest to them. Mm-hmm. So you'd have Cub fans in Mesa. You'd have Giant fans in Scottsdale. In the early days, there were Blue Jay fans in Dunedin. And people who lived in Clearwater, I mean, many of them had migrated to Florida in in middle age or, or later. So they rooted for the Yankees or or the Cubs or whatever team was their childhood and team. But for those who actually lived there, you'd actually find disproportionate number of Pirate fans in Bradenton and Philly fans in Clearwater, which was a cool, charming little thing. Yeah, no question. I can remember when I first started covering the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, they're in Plant City. That you know, just the, the, yeah. oh, there. With, that's the. It was. It was the Strawberry Festival and the Cincinnati Reds. That, those were the things that. Yeah. That Plant City took great pride in. And, and, yeah, and I mean, you'd see, you'd see Tiger Hats in Lakeland. Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, you know, again, look, it's become much bigger business, and I think in many ways that's good. There's the these stadiums are way better than they used to be. I mean, there's so many things that are better, and I'm not trying to say that there isn't. It's just. That I, it felt like before, hey, I, I'm going to spring training. I'm going to get to kind of meet the ball players to some yes. degree. And now that is Absolutely. much harder to do, I think. Yeah. 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 It's still easier than during the regular season, but not the same. You know? so, so how much as, do you. As Joni, as Joni Mitchell once sang, something's lost and something's gained in living every day. And yeah. we just have to accept that for better <laughs> and for worse. That's true. That's true. One of the things that is, I think, uh, I, I don't know if it's better, but it's certainly as good as ever, is the great storylines that come out in spring training, which have virtually nothing to do with the way the season is going to play out. Of course, every right, we, we all know every player is in the best shape of their career. Uh, I What I really like lately, I've been noticing, is, like, I, I can't even remember which pitcher it was, but it was a pitcher one of the pitchers who is who is sort of on the on the comeback trail a little bit and the headline was and i wish i could remember who it was but the headline was player x whoever it is dominant performance mm-hmm. and i'm like that's great you know this pitcher is coming back and i look and it was like an inning and a third he had three strikeouts or something yeah. i was like that's not really a dominant performance but that's what spring training brings for us i think well here's the thing the phenom or the new trade acquisition who hits 400 in spring training, that's indicative of something. But the veteran who's just rounding into shape, yeah. who hits 150, <laughs> eh, I'm just tuning up. doesn't matter. <laughs> and we accept both of those things as, as insightful observations. Here's something that just popped into my head. Tony La Russa becomes the manager of the Cardinals yeah. in 1996 and begins a very successful run. They come within one win of uh, in the LCS against the Braves of going to the World Series that year. 
Ozzie Smith is toward the back end of his career. He's 40 years old. And I'm going off the top of my head here, but I think he hit like, <clears throat> pardon me, 195, 198, something like that in 1995. So he doesn't want to end on that note. And he wants to come back and, and finish uh, on a better note than that. The Cardinals have a younger shortstop named Royce Clayton. Tony LaRussa, knowing what a legend Ozzy is in St. Louis, can't just cast him aside. He says, we'll see in spring training. Whoever plays the best will be the starting shortstop. Well, Ozzy hits like 350 in spring <laughs> training, and he looks like the old Ozzy Smith. And now, and now, um, and now Larusa is stuck because he can't even plausibly say, "Well, we'll platoon them," because Ozzy's a switch hitter. Right? <laughs> Ozzy wants to play every day. Okay. So, and this, this is a real PR problem in St. Louis because Ozzy is Ozzy. They're, they're already casting the mold for the statue and LaRusso's just arrived from Oakland and they, they worked it out. Uh, Clayton got his at-bats. Ozzy got his generally against right-handed pitching, not as many as he would have wanted. And he did end his career with an appropriate final season. But that's what can sometimes happen in spring training. <laughs> LaRusso probably figured as he goes out there, he hits 210, he's lost a step. This, the problem is solved for me. Uh-oh, didn't work out that way. I always, always thought the great thing about spring training is, is that you, you've, you've heard the story, I'm sure, from George himself. But George Brett always said that he regretted the way his career ended, which is funny because he had just about the perfect ending to his career, yes. right? He had the kissing of home plate in Kansas City and and everything was absolutely ideal. He was, you know, just a year off of his a batting title. I mean, it was it was absolutely perfect. But he always said that he wished he had gone to spring training the next year, taken the minimum salary, gone to spring training and tried to win a job, just like he had when he was a young player. And he, he just thought that's like so representative of who he is and what baseball is. And and that's the part I still get the biggest kick out of is, is you know, these these people who are hungry, you know, these, these 27, 28-year-old prospects who have been written off or the veteran who, who like Ozzy's, like, I, that's not how I want to go out. And mm -hmm. they come to spring training, and for them, it matters. And it's really cool to yeah. watch that story. You know, I had not heard that about George Brett, but it's consistent with everything we know about him. Sure. And it makes me like him even more. Yeah. Almost all of us, almost all fans and almost all of those who write about sports or broadcast sports believe that the perfect way to end is in some way that represents, if not the peak of your career, then at least the essence mm -hmm. of your career. And we wince at Willie Mays falling down in the outfield or that kind of thing toward the end of his career with the Mets. Uh, but there is another school of thought. It's not the predominant one. And I don't want to sound like I'm reaching way back here, although I actually am. <laughs> Bill, Bill Bradley, yeah. uh, the great Princeton All-American, who if you're talking about the great college basketball players, is one of the great college basketball players of all time. And a very good NBA player sure. who was part of a great team the two-time NBA champion Knicks of the early 70s. He was also, obviously, a different kind of athlete. He was a Rhodes Scholar, later went on to become a U.S. Senator and was plausibly uh, thought of as a presidential candidate. Right. 
his and he wrote he wrote a book called Life on the Run mm -hmm. about his last couple of seasons with the Knicks and what it was like, not just on the court, but on the road and the, the camaraderie and also the antagonisms and all the rest. And his idea was, look, as long as I can play well enough to be a contributing player in the league, I'm not troubled that I'm not as good as I was at my best. This is the natural arc of an athlete's life. And when an athlete's life ends, you're still a relatively young man or woman. And I've enjoyed this immensely. Why shouldn't I let it play out mm -hmm. to its natural end as long as I'm contributing to my team in some way? My minutes should be reduced. I'm not going to, they're not going to look to me maybe in a clutch situation as much as they once did, but I can still contribute something. And I want this journey to reach its natural end. But most of us don't view it that way. Most of us think in whatever our profession is, if we're lucky enough to have done pretty well, I want to get out of this before people's last memory of me is something less than me at my best. It's so interesting you say that because there's something I've been thinking about a lot lately, and, and it kind of relates directly to you and your career. Um, and that is how it ended for Michael Jordan. So, of course, everybody knows the, the famous final shot against, well, it would ended up being the final shot against Utah that you so famously called, you know, uh, in that NBA final won their third straight uh, championship after the first three-peat, so his sixth title. And, you know, you said if this is, uh, I, the, the exact words are, uh, I'll get wrong, but if this is how it ends, how wonderful it's been, how marvelous yeah. it is, you know. Mm -hmm. And it could have ended like that for him. He did. He, he, he was ready to retire. He could have ended like that for him. And that's Ted Williams hitting a home run in his last at bat. That's, you know, that is, that is sort of the dream ending. But knowing Michael Jordan, knowing how competitive it is, know that he still wants to play in the NBA. Like he wants to, like if, if he felt like he could get out there and play tomorrow, he would. You remember at his Hall of Fame speech talking about coming back at 50 and people laughed and he said, it's not a joke. Mm -hmm. Isn't the ending really the way it ended in Washington? I mean, isn't that sort of more reflective of the competitiveness, the unwillingness to, to step away, the unwillingness to admit defeat at any point. I mean, here he was in a, on a, on a bad team, still finding ways, you know, he's, his body's not the same. He's shooting fall away jumpers basically every time down, but he's finding ways to still, you know, be a factor and be, you know, the best player on the floor on a lot of nights. And that's kind of who Michael Jordan was also, right? Yeah, and you had to grant him that because he was Michael Jordan. Right. Uh, he could define his own life and his own career on his own terms. I really think in the public imagination, that is a footnote. It's yes, different than right. if he played the 98-99 season mm -hmm. with the Wizards or even came back with the Bulls and uh, they didn't make it all the way to the championship. So the last image is him walking off the court in defeat in right. some early round playoff series. There was... There was a break there of three years before he came back. So, or was it four seasons before he came back? Uh, whatever it may have been. Yeah. 2001, 2002, right? Yeah. So, I think it so was that's three. a break of yeah. four seasons. Three, four, four who cares? Yeah, the point, the point <laughs> is that I think it's viewed as a footnote in the public mind and doesn't in any way diminish the image of that last classic jump shot. Uh, in June of 98 at the Delta Center. 
No, I totally agree with that. I, I'm really referring to, you know, us the way we sort of view, like, the ending has to be this something. Like, you, you hear, I mean, the most famous one, of course, is is Willie Mays falling down in the outfield and, and, and mm-hmm. all of that. But, you know, it's also John Unitas playing, you know, for the Chargers, right? I mean, this is... Yes. And, and in some ways, like, why would we... Why would we begrudge, and, and by we, I don't mean us too, I just mean in general, why would we begrudge these athletes who do not want to, they, they don't want to end. They don't want it to end just mm-hmm. because the, the ending was perfect doesn't mean that that's, that they view that as the ending. And, and you know, it, it was, obviously it did not work out well for Unitas, uh, for OJ Simpson at the end, is regardless of, of what would uh, later happen to him uh, in, in real life. But like various players, Joe Namath at the end, where it's like, oh, this is this is bad. Yeah. But that's what they wanted. And I, I, I don't know that we always give these athletes, you know, it's it's what we want is to remember them in, at their best. I don't know that them, you know, wanting to go on and play a little bit longer uh, should prevent us from feeling that way. Well, agreed. And there are multiple factors in each individual situation, but here's one players of the past in many cases kept playing as long as they could for the money. Yeah. Michael Jordan didn't face that. Right. Present day athletes won't face that. If you were that good to get to that level where you're hall of fame, great. And people are talking about what's the last image and we don't want to tarnish the legend. Right. Then by definition, over the last couple of generations, you've made enough money that you should never have to come back for another season just to collect the check. Yeah, no, that's 100% right. That's 100% right. I mean, obviously it was different. Then, I, you know, I just I just do think that it's, it's really interesting. Uh, I don't know how I'd be as an athlete. Like, if I was a great athlete, which now we're, we're really getting out there into – into space. But if I was, if yeah, I you was might as well at- be saying if I was an astronaut, right? <laughs> right. All right. Exactly. Or an athlete. I don't even have to put great in front of it. Um, but if, but I, I think I, I, you know, I don't know that I would be necessarily drawn to, Oh, I need it. Like Mike Mussina mattered to him, how it ended. Like he did not want to, you know, he wins 20 games in his last year. He certainly could have held on, probably mm-hmm. would have won 300 and and uh, and gotten into the Hall of Fame more quickly than he did, although, of course, he's there now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he didn't care. He's like, no, this is the right time for me. But I could see other athletes, you know, that that just say, I, I love this game. I want to play it until they kick me out. This is This is how I feel about the sport. And, you know, sometimes the fates are kinder to one person than another. Look at the season stats in 2014 for Derek Jeter. He's not Derek Jeter anymore, but all that anybody remembers is that last moment at Yankee stadium, Mm -hmm. the walk-off base hit in front of a packed house, a classic inside out swing opposite field single that wins the ball game. They don't even remember that he took a couple of at bats at Fenway park uh, when the season concluded with a weekend series there and his actual last at bat, he beat out an infield hit. They don't remember that. Right. So, And it doesn't matter. I don't remember his exact batting average, but this was not an all-star caliber season. Of course, no. he was on the all-star team because he was Derek Jeter, and that's the way it should be. And, of course, because he was Derek Jeter, he got two hits in the all-star game. So, 
you know, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that go into creating images beyond just the cold facts of the overall performance. No question. No question. I mean, if, you know, the Ted Williams home run is the perfect ending. Uh, he quit right then and there. He didn't go. The, the, the season wasn't over. He, no, he, they, it was the, the flip side of what I just said. He was yeah. going to go from Fenway Park to Yankee Stadium. Right. And he didn't play the last three games at Yankee Stadium. But, of course, he was a miracle to the end because yes. not only did he hit a home run, that was his 29th home run of the season, and he hit well over 300 that season Amazing. in his early 40s. Amazing. Well, the one that, that struck me – that I wasn't as familiar with, uh, that's sort of the opposite of, of the Ted Williams thing, uh, was Al Kaline going into his last game. And, and it was, uh, you know, a, a very small crowd in Detroit. And everybody, you know, the people who people were there were there to see Al Kaline hit a home run. And, of course, for him, it would have been even more, yeah. uh, you know, touching because it would have been his 400th home run. Uh, but he was injured and he knew he couldn't do it, and he tried. He he, he took two at bats and tried, and then pulled himself out of the game, you know, because he just didn't want didn't want the pain anymore, and and it didn't matter to him. That that tell I mean Ted Williams, the the word miracle is right. I mean there there was there's nothing that should have allowed Ted Williams to hit home run in that crazy you know wind blowing in terrible weather day at Fenway Park. I mean that's. That's uh, he was a miracle. Well, you know, he said that he hit two balls earlier in the game yeah. that he thought would have been out on a different day, dank, cold, windy, uh, late September day at Fenway Park. And what I found fascinating, you know, as he mellowed with time, he began to understand or better understand the theater and drama of the moment. But in the moment, this was to him with his obsession with the science of hitting, this was to him another at-bat, even Amazing. if it was his last at-bat. And perhaps you're familiar with this, Joe. He told this story beautifully uh, on Ken Burns' baseball documentary. Jack Fisher was the pitcher for the Orioles, and he threw him a fastball at the letters, and Williams fouled it back. And Williams says to this day, I have no idea why I wasn't on top of that ball, huh. but I could just see Fisher the way he snatched the ball back when the catcher threw it to him. He's saying the old man can't get around <laughs> on my fastball. So I know he's coming right back with it. He did. And bam. <laughs> it's so so he's not thinking, he's not thinking about John Updike is sitting here in the ballpark. He's going to write an unforgettable <laughs> essay about me. The game isn't even on television. It's a different era. There's 10,000 people in the, in the stands. He's thinking he's a hitter and this is my last time to hit and damn it. I'm going to go down the same way I ever did. It. <laughs> but you know, the, the thing, and the Ted Williams home run is a perfect example. I mean, I mean, there are even better examples, but it is still a perfect example of something that you and I have talked about at some length, which is the notion of legend, right? That we, we, that mm -hmm. word gets so overused. And so, you know, we talk about people being mythical. We talk about legend. Um, that comes still from a time when legend 
makes some sense because there were only 10,000 yeah. people in the ballpark. You couldn't watch it on television. You couldn't go to YouTube and watch it over and over again on replay. You couldn't, uh, I mean, when you, when John Updike wrote about it, you know, for, for most of the country, that might've been the first time they'd even heard about it. I mean, you know, other than, yeah. other than what they saw in their morning paper, right? That's right. You know, I've made this point uh, many times over the years. <clears throat> you can say whatever you want about spectacular modern athletes. But LeBron James is much less a legend than Satchel Paige. Yeah. LeBron James is much less a legend than Dr. J in the ABA. In fact, of major sports leagues, the last one where you can really talk about legend is the ABA. Yeah. Because the vast majority of those games were not on television. And so what we know about them is almost word of mouth. And my recollection of a Dr. J dunk at Freedom Hall in Louisville against the <laughs> Kentucky Colonels yeah. might be different than the recollection of Kevin Lockery, who was his coach on the bench. And these stories get handed down, and maybe some of them are apocryphal to some extent. That's what a legend is. That doesn't mean that the modern athlete is any less great or any less sensational or any less memorable. But Babe Ruth is mythic. What happened in the Negro Leagues is legend as much as fact. But modern day athletes, every game, <laughs> if you're channel surfing ESPN and someday there'll be an ESPN 96, as it is, it's like ESPN 456, whatever it is. You're watching a baseball game because you can't find the remote between between you know, Georgia State and, and <laughs> East Carolina. And it's like, wait, this game's on TV? When, when I was a kid, I couldn't even see my hometown team playing, my major league team. This game is on TV? There's a volleyball game on the next channel? <laughs> What's left to be legends? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, and it's great. What a great time to be a sports fan, right? You can see anything and everything at all times. But that legend thing is is it's it's funny because you can get conditioned i mean even even growing up you know somewhat in that world you can get conditioned to they'll show some sort of great moment in 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 sports history whatever it might be and you'll think well, isn't there a better camera angle than that like can't they can't we go back yeah. it, it it blows my mind here's here's sort of a recent legend and i think it's a legend because of the way it was covered. Bo Jackson's throw from left field to throw mm -hmm. out Harold Reynolds at the plate where he threw it mm -hmm. from the wall. The only the only video that is available for that, uh, that game was on television, but the only video, the camera cuts just as he throws the ball. So you never see the ball in the air. You see him get to the ball and yeah. begin to throw, and then you're watching Harold Reynolds round third and then the ball is in, I think it was, I think it was either Sunberg or Bob Boone, whoever the catcher was. It's in his glove and he tags Reynolds out and Reynolds can't believe it and he goes crazy. But you never see that throw. That to me is legend, you know? Well, I apologize because we're focusing only on baseball here, but it's what comes immediately to mind. The very essence of legend is was Jackie Robinson yes. safe? or out on the steal of home. Yes. Yogi Berra went to his grave insisting that he was out. We only have the one angle. One Would angle. baseball be richer if we had a definitive angle? 
would baseball be richer if there was replay then if you could see it from 10 different angles and slow it down and freeze it or are we better off with the legend yeah you know i'm not saying i'm not saying that time shouldn't march on but <clears throat> pardon me but we have legend because at different points in time we didn't have all the technology and everything available as it is now uh people i, I remember people of my grandparents' generation telling me, not necessarily people who grew up in New York, people who followed baseball, though, who talked about DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak. Yeah. In fact, allow me to go off on a tangent here because this is the podcast. So where <laughs> yes. else are they going to go off on a tangent? <laughs> there was a Philip Marlowe movie, a famous kind of detective film noir thing. Sure. I think Robert Mitchum starred as Philip Marlowe. And I think the movie was Farewell, My Lovely. Part of the through line of it, as he marked time, as he tried to crack this case, was DiMaggio's hitting streak. And he would stop by a newsstand and he'd pick up the newspaper. Yeah, he got two hits last night. <laughs> He's at 45. He's at 47. People would ask about it at work in the morning. Or they'd hear about it on the radio. Now, would we opt to do that today if the game was right in front of us and available to us? Of course we wouldn't. Right. But that because those were the circumstances, people remember it differently. You know, the mists of memory that surround it gives it a, a whole different meaning. I once, yeah. I once went to Bob Feller's hometown in Van Meter, Iowa. Sure. And there's a Bob Feller Museum. It's a little tiny sort of two-room thing, but it has all the artifacts of his career. And one person sat at the desk. And my son Keith and I, this is maybe 10 years ago, maybe more, we go walking through there. And she said, well, you're the first visitors today. <laughs> it was like noon. <laughs> you know? she, she said, well, enjoy yourself. And then she continued reading the book she was reading but you could see the train track overhead beyond the hill and you could picture the 16 17 year old bob feller schoolboy sensation hearing the train go by dreaming as kids do where's that train going who's on that train where are they headed what are their dreams and what he knew about big league baseball was the games he heard recreated, in some cases by Ronald Reagan mm -hmm. on WHO in Des Moines, Cub games. And what they knew about him were dispatches out of Van Meter, Iowa. Sensational high school kid. Now he comes to the big leagues, and as a 17-year-old, he strikes out 15 guys, <laughs> like right off the bat, in the big leagues. All right, but now you live in Boston. Okay, until the Indians come to Boston... What do you know? Yeah. You live in St. Louis. The Cleveland doesn't play St. Louis. What do you know about Bob Feller? Newsreels, newspapers, the sporting news, which then was baseball's Bible. You know, I again, I'm not saying it was better then, but there's something about that that is deeply romantic. And that's where legend and mythology come into play. And if you think, I know you don't, but if anyone thinks that legend and mythology and romance 
are not part of the appeal of sports and especially part of the appeal of baseball, they're wrong. And the absence of that kind of distance is part of the reason, there are multiple reasons, part of the reason baseball doesn't get in people's hearts quite the way it once did. Now, I know that numerically, even in relative decline, more people attend baseball games and watch baseball games than ever before. And baseball as a business is much healthier than it was then. But baseball as a place in the public imagination is not the same as it was then. Yeah, that's what's so interesting to me. People can make this point and should make this point because it is true. The golden era of baseball, if you consider the 50s the golden era, uh, the game was really struggling. And and the attendance was at in free fall, absolute free fall, to the point where two teams left New York. I mean, it was in absolute free fall across the game. In certain there were certain areas like Milwaukee had this this brief run where they were they were a sensation, but but of course mm-hmm. eventually they leave as well. But America's the place that baseball had in the American landscape was much bigger and much more. Uh, it was just much richer and it was a part of people's conversation and part of people's lives in a way that, you know, that football is now. I mean, frankly, I mean, yeah. the way that, that football is now to, to a large well, degree. And, until the early 70s, every World Series game was in the afternoon yeah. and most of them were midweek afternoon games. But it still was the talk of the nation. Yeah. And obviously there were much fewer uh, options in terms of television viewing in most cities, you had the three network stations, maybe a couple of independents and, right. and the PBS stations, so a half dozen stations. But even so, you know, these games are getting ratings that would be topped only by a Super Bowl. Yeah. These yeah. games are getting ratings double any NBA finals game today. And sad to say, in some cases, four times the size of a World Series game, the lowest rated World Series games today. Yeah, well, it feels like baseball, but but you're right. At the same time, uh, it is it is definitely well locally. It is a sensation in a way that it could that it could not have yes. been then. In, in the sense of it's it's it is the number one rated show in your town. Your team is the number one rated show, right? Sure. I mean, so it's still and of course attendance is much higher. But I don't think there's any question that the sport lacks the place in, in the country's sort of, uh, you know, in, in that world of sports that it would like to have. And I do think that part of that is romance. And the question for, for you is, is there a way to bring some romance back into the game considering we're not going back and no, none of us want to go back when it comes to, to uh, you know, the access that we have, the, the extraordinary, you know, ability that we have now to, to see everything and analyze everything. I mean, th- we're not going, we're not going to go back. I mean, whether, even if people wanted to, which they don't. So um, is there a way in today's world to inject romance and, and, and some of those things that made baseball, so special for so many people for so long. No, I think it's gone. Uh, I don't know how, I don't know how you could recreate the circumstances we've been discussing. Right. You know, it's just, it's like, and this may be an imperfect analogy. It's just what's into my head. It's a good thing that so many different forms of music are available to us now 
Um, you could create your own catalog. You can sample various genres. But there was something about top 40 radio. I guess there is still top 40. It's whatever are you know, the top songs selling uh, in the various genres, country, urban, rock, without, however you're defining it. But you recall what top 40 radio was, and we're sounding like a couple of geezers on the front porch, <laughs> but okay, fine. What top 40 radio was, just about everybody who listened to rock or pop music knew all those songs at a given period of time. You know, th for three or four months, these were the songs in the top 40. And it was actually more of a mixture than people might realize. You know, Simon and Garfunkel were like folk rock, for lack of a better description. Right. But they, they could play, they could be the next song after the Beatles and before the Rolling Stones. And then comes the Temptations, and then comes Joni Mitchell, and then comes the Four Tops or Smokey Robinson, and and then and then comes something that's that's more bubblegum like the Monkees or something, you know. It was it, at, at least on its own terms, it was kind of an eclectic mix, but it was also what every kid in school had in his frame of reference, and every guy or girl you went to college with had in their frame of reference. Now, can we can we replicate that? No. no. Should we? I'm not saying we should. I'm just I'm just reporting from my vantage point that that's the way it was, kids. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think that's right. Today's episode is sponsored by the NBA and their quest to advance the game of basketball, grow the community, and impact culture. The league celebrates its teams, players, and fans across the past, present, and future as part of its 75th anniversary season. That's game highlights pivotal moments on court and beyond, from iconic plays and arenas to the impact players have in the community. That's the NBA. That's game. Like in the NBA Finals when the Bucks had their backs against the wall. Drew Holiday steals the ball, pushes the break. Alley hooped to Giannis for an iconic slam. Seals game five and the eventual title. That's the NBA. That's game. This is more than just basketball. It's what connects us all and keeps us coming back for more. That's the NBA. That's game. Today's episode is sponsored by the NBA and their quest to advance the game of basketball, grow the community, and impact culture. The league celebrates its teams, players, and fans across the past, present, and future as part of the 75th anniversary season. That's game highlights pivotal moments on court and beyond. From iconic plays in arenas to the impact players have in communities, that's the NBA. That's game. It's like game five of the NBA Finals where I was lucky enough to be there. Bucks Suns in Milwaukee. I'm sitting kitty corner from Giannis Antetokounmpo as he rises up for that incredible alley-oop. Drew Holiday having stolen the ball from Devin Booker on the other side. Found Giannis in transition. Incredible stuff. That's the NBA. That's game. This is more than just basketball. It's what connects us all and keeps us coming back for more. That's the NBA. That's game. And, and you know, I, I don't know that baseball – to, to get back to, to, to the sport, I don't know that baseball can ever be the national sport that it was and that maybe what it needs to be is doubling down on the local sport that it has become, which is, which is you know, quite, I mean, it, it is still, it's still, I mean, obviously there's, there's a great deal of business success that goes with it, but within individual towns, individual places, 
I don't know that the Royals have ever been bigger in Kansas City than they than they were, you know, in the in the last few years. I don't know that the Cardinals are any, you know, they're as big as they've ever been in St. Louis. I, I think, sure. you know, you, you look around and within individual places, baseball is doing not just fine, it's thriving in those places. But it is it is you know the the whether it's a whether it's a game of the week which obviously you were you know intimately involved with uh, at a time when that was that still meant an awful lot whether it's the playoffs which obviously become a bigger and bigger part of the of the baseball landscape or whether it's the World Series that part does not stop the nation the way that it did. No, no, um, but as you say, under normal non-COVID circumstances, you couldn't say that the Red Sox or the Yankees or the Cardinals or whatever team you want to name, the Cubs, uh, that they're not really important locally and really successful and really successful commercially. And here's something that's interesting. In certain places, tradition is part of their modern appeal. Fenway Park is still part of the Red Sox appeal. Wrigley is still part of the Cubs' appeal. And the retro ballparks, which began to spring up in the 90s, beginning with Camden Yards, they proved to be spectacularly successful. So that does show that there is an element of retro, an element of nostalgia, an element of history and generational connection that matters more in baseball than it does in other sports. But it hasn't translated in this past generation, maybe last two generations, it hasn't translated nationally as it once did. Yeah. And, and, and I don't know that it will, I, you know, that's, that's a, it's a question I know that baseball constantly works with. And of course, one of the ways they work with that are trying to make the game more appealing, uh, certainly as a television sport. And, and so now we, you can talk about certain things. Uh, I know that these are things that you, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about and feel, can feel pretty strongly about one of those things I mentioned, I wrote a little something. So I'm doing these letters from spring where I'm writing about a different team every day, uh, uh, during spring training and, and not specifically always about the team as they are now, but historic reference and, and just trying to have fun with, with different teams. And one of the, the things I was talking about in, in one of them was I was talking about how sometimes <clears throat> the game, in so many ways, I think every step of evolution makes the game, quote unquote, better in the sense of the quality of the sport, right? So so now there is no question that when you look at the average pitch in, in uh, Major League Baseball, it is X miles per hour faster than the average pitch has ever been. The breaking balls break X, you know, more, uh, they have more tilt the people are much, you know, it's, it's much stronger. There's much greater stuff. It's much harder to hit, uh, the baseballs right now because of some of those things. And, and that's, you know, that's why the game evolves. The game evolves to get better in, in those sorts of ways. But by doing that, what we have lost or what, what has changed is starters, for the large part, do not have play the same role in the game. Well, they, they don't at any point, even, even the very best starters don't play the same role that the best starters used to. But in, in many places and many times, the starters don't play really uh, a very significant role anyway. 
And more to the point, something that used to be so fun about baseball was watching a starting pitcher who was beginning to lose his stuff try to figure out how to get out of a jam, try to figure out how to get out. It's the seventh inning. He's thrown 128 pitches, Mm -hmm. but you got to get out of it and you got to figure out how to do it. And sometimes you will, sometimes you won't. But that was that was more interesting. It's not better. It's certainly better to put in a, a reliever that throws 102 miles an hour, but it's not more interesting. And I do wonder if, you know, I mean, the way these games go, you're always going to go for what's, what's going to help you win. What's, what's going to make you know yeah. the quality of the game better. And you're not really as concerned about the storylines of the game. Well, I agree with you on all this. And now I'm just going to surrender to the inevitability that some people listening to this are going to say, well, it's just a, a series of middle-aged or older guys <laughs> complaints about yeah, I don't want it to sound like and that. They're not. They, it's just these are observations about yeah. the difference in circumstance. But I think, to your point, it's interesting that baseball has now hired Theo Epstein yes. to help undo some of what he helped to create. Hey, I don't mean to overstate it. Dr. Frankenstein, can you please <laughs> tell us how to cage the monster so he's not rampaging across the countryside anymore uh i think it's generally now understood that what may be best for baseball from an analytics standpoint for gaining a competitive edge is almost never best for baseball as an entertainment product Mm -hmm. used to be able to look in the paper or check online and we're not talking about 1970 we're talking about 2000 even yeah and look and see who are the probable pitchers people used to talk about it's a great pitching matchup now they still may if it's the first game of the world series and both teams are able to go with their ace it does happen occasionally but we all know that a pitching matchup only lasts for a few innings right even if even if the score is one to nothing it's not going to be deep into the game i remember tom siever telling me and he was roughly the equivalent of a Tony Gwynn uh, or Ted Williams talking about hitting from a sure. pitching standpoint. You know, not everybody can can speak in a relatable way about their craft the way some can. And Seaver was able to do that. Now, at this point, he's with the White Sox. So it's sometime in the early 80s, early to mid 80s. And he's not the Tom Seaver of old. And he said. I can still throw a 95-mile-an-hour fastball, but I've only got about a half dozen of them in my arm Mm -hmm. per game. The thing is, the hitter doesn't know when it's coming. And the difference between pitching and throwing is, why would I waste one of those 95-mile-an-hour fastballs against the number eight or nine hitter, who's an American League game, the number eight or nine hitter who isn't going to hurt me with two outs and nobody on in the fourth inning? And why, why would I show the most dangerous hitter the best I've got if it's not a clutch situation? That's the difference between pitching and throwing. And he was still anticipating, even at 40 or whatever his age was, that he'd be around in the seventh, eighth, or maybe even the ninth inning. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is – well, you know, my, my one of my favorite Seaver stories is on the day – uh, that he won his 300th game. He was in the uh, in the bullpen warming up, 
and uh, the pitching coach uh, came out to see him and uh, and watched him for a couple innings and said, man, Tom, you got nothing. You got absolutely nothing. And Seaver looked to him and said, I know that, you know that, but they don't know that. And, you know, that's... That to me is, but, 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 you know, and I, and I, I do want to say this because I mean, you're right. I mean, we, we should be proactive here and say that, yeah, people are going to listen and say, oh, they just wanted to go back to the way it used to be. Nobody loves baseball more than we do. You know, I mean, the, the game, wherever the game goes, I'm going to, I'm going to be on the, in the front row loving it. I mean, it's mm-hmm. baseball, but that doesn't mean that. There aren't things, not just that I miss, but things that are no longer a part of the game for reasons that 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 don't, it's not that they don't make sense. They make perfect sense. It makes absolutely perfect sense to me to have your starter go four innings. That makes perfect sense to me. I get it. If I want to win, sort of like the way that uh, Pat Riley figured out how to win with those Knicks, right? Where it's like, hey, you just play, at the time, they, the, 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 you know, they weren't calling it that close. You beat up on the guy, right. make it 83, 80, 79, and you might, you're going to win, but that doesn't make it fun to watch. Well, and, that's why Riley's Knicks were nowhere near as artful or, or entertaining to watch as his Showtime Lakers. Yes. But he was playing the hand he'd been dealt as best he could. Right. Right. And, and I, this is their job, and I don't blame them one bit for doing it. This is why I've always thought, but baseball needs somebody who's going to look out and say, okay, well, what? How entertaining is this? And that's what's fun to me about Theo Epstein. And, you know, because I've had great conversations with him, even when he was at a time and he would be the first to admit it, that, of course, he was looking for every, not just loophole, but every opportunity to to take advantage of what he needed to do to win. But he would also say, you know, we as a baseball, uh, uh, like as a, as a community, all of us as fans, mm-hmm. ought to ask, what is the game we want to see? How many... How many triples do we want to see as fans? How many stolen bases do we want to see as fans? And, you know, and make the, I mean, I think the NFL does a pretty good job of this, frankly. I mean, the NFL, for for all of its many, many things that uh, you and I could probably spend all day talking about, uh, the NFL's like, what do the fans want? The fans want touchdowns. They want passes. They want quarterbacks that, that are making extraordinary plays and, even though defenses, you know, the defensive players are better than they've ever been, they're, this is what we get when we watch football, you know? Mm-hmm. It's true. So, basketball, yeah. basketball may face uh, a small adjustment. I guess it's debatable. Do you want a game that's this three-point centric? Yeah, right. Obviously, there are guys who are much more proficient at shooting them. I mean, Steph Curry left alone, shoots a three <laughs> from closer to half court than the top of the three-point arc and sinks it. You yeah. know, I mean the all yeah. the, the all-star game was just a whole series of uncontested dunks <laughs> and unguarded three-pointers. And it's the all-star game. So okay, right. fine. But do we know that fans like a more wide open game? We know that three-pointers are exciting. Yeah. But are they exciting? as punctuations um, or as exclamation points or as strategy late in the game, or do we want it to become the shot that in many games is more than 50% of the field goal attempts for a given team? Is that what we want? And it's a great question. I do think that that's, it's not a direct correlation to home runs in baseball, 
But it, there is a correlation in the sense of we love the home run, but there's a limit. There comes a point where it's like, okay, there are too many. They're, the home runs don't feel special anymore the way that they did. And I don't know where that line is. Obviously, everybody's going to have a different place for that line. But I would say that many people who were who were complaining about what's wrong with the baseballs, you know, for, forgetting what happened in the 90s and the PEDs and all that. I'm talking recent history where, you know, suddenly the Minnesota Twins are hitting 350 home runs in a year or whatever it is, uh, where you're just going, wow, it's like it's way more than you're getting more home runs than singles. You're getting more, uh, you know, the teams are scoring huge percentage of their runs on home runs. Uh, it's essentially strikeout home run uh, walk, uh, you know, and, and and not that many walks, at least at that time. And you go, okay, well, you know what? Now we need we need to we need to tone this back. We got to get a, a little more, you know, diversity into the game. And so, you know, I, I guess baseball has sort of let in large part let a lot of this stuff go wild, let the let the managers decide what these things are going to be. And I don't know that that's the best decision. Well, one thing they can do. And I wouldn't be surprised. I'm not guaranteeing it, but I wouldn't be surprised uh, that this, if this suggestion comes uh, from Theo Epstein eventually, and it's not going to solve all of it, but I do think it would have a ripple effect. If they instituted a rule that said you have to have two fielders on either side of second base, that would help immensely. Now, I've always been very hesitant to compare baseball to any other sport because it is so different in so many ways. But as a justifying principle, there are formations that are not allowed in football. The blue lines have always been there in hockey for a reason. You can't be in the lane for three seconds. They can move the three-point line in or back if they want to. Uh, Zone defenses at one time were not allowed in the NBA, and now they are. There wasn't a shot clock in college basketball until relatively recently. For much of its history, there was no shot clock. So there are adjustments that can be made. I don't care if under that rule, the shortstop's left foot is touching second base or the second baseman's right foot is touching second base. But you have to have two fielders on either side of the bag. That would eliminate extreme shifts. Tom Verducci, who's great at this stuff, pointed out and showed it statistically that it isn't just that, all right, you got three guys usually on the right side of the infield, but sometimes on the left against a right-handed power hitter or power uh, pull hitter rather. Um, And so a lot of times people say, well, why don't you just hit the ball the other way? Well, as part of analytics, the best pitchers are actually pitching to a kind of contact that almost forces you, if you hit the ball on the ground, to hit it into the shift. That makes it very, very difficult to take it the other way. They're not going to pitch you on the outside corner as a left-handed hitter if they've shifted over to the right side of the diamond. And so the answer to that from a hitting standpoint is I can't hit it through this. There are all kinds of statistics, not just our naked eye, that show you the number of balls that would have been base hits prior to several years ago that you can't get through an overshifted infield anymore and how futile it is for a guy who can't run to try and hit the ball on the ground and get thrown out from shallow right field. So what's the answer to that? Especially when analytics are not penalizing you for striking out, you try and elevate the ball. 
We try and hit it in the air. So not only do we get fewer guys on base, but we also get in an era when you have a whole group of spectacular young shortstops, less of an opportunity to do great Javi Baez type things, to do great Ozzie Smith type things. You know, if let the players play, let the kids play is your mantra. Well, give them the full range of the game's possibility. Give me more balls in the gap. Give me more relay plays. Give me more guys trying to score from first on a double or stretch a double into a triple or Javi Baez doing more spectacular things because he's not positioned in such a way that the ball's going to be hit right at him more often than a play that, that forces him or, or allows him is the better way to put it to show his range and to show his athletic ability. And it would be a good thing. I understand that the sacrifice is in eclipse, even in the national league, uh, the sacrifice is in eclipse, the stolen bases in eclipse because analytics have told us that except at the highest percentages, the risk of the out is not worth the possible extra base that you gain with the steal. But the stolen base is exciting. Yeah. Whitey Herzog's Cardinals of the 80s. We're not talking about the gas house gang of the 30s. <laughs> Whitey Herzog's Cardinal team of the 80s won three pennants, lost the World Series in the seventh game twice. Otherwise, they might have won three World Series during that period of time. They never hit 100 home runs in a season. Herzog's right. standing joke was, we're trying to break Roger Maris's record, which then was the record, <laughs> as a team. And one year they hit 67 homers, which was barely more than Maris hit himself in 1961. But they weren't just a winning team. They were a spectacularly entertaining team yes. to watch. Now, can we go all the way back to that? No. But we've taken that element completely out of the game. You know, what does Kenny Lofton do today? We're not talking about the distant past. What do you do with Kenny Lofton today? What do you do with Juan Pierre? Not as great a player, but a very good player. What do you do with that player today? Yeah, no, no, it's 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 a great point. You know, I have not thought as much about you know when I think about the shift, I usually do think about the hits that are lost and 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 you know the the opportunity maybe to put the ball in play more. And and by the way, I I often think whenever people say, well, why don't they hit the other way? And I'm as guilty of that as anybody. I always think about, well, just hit the ball the other way. Uh, but then I'm reminded of what Ted Williams said uh, when Ty Cobb. Uh, explained to him how to hit the ball the other way. And they said to, uh, to Williams, uh, you know, Oh, are you going to use Ty Cobb's method when you face the shift? And Ted Williams said, I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. So, you know, I, I don't, I, if Ted Williams was, was unable or unwilling to, uh, to, uh, go the other way. Well, I'm not sure. I don't know. That's the best example because a, he was Ted Williams and B right. he figured out a lot of the modern, uh, idea of hitting. He figured it out on his own. With, oh, no with the uppercut and with the weight shift and the whole thing. And he was a dead pull hitter and it all worked for him. But for mortal man, uh, yeah. using the entire field is often uh, the better way to go. If you can, if you can, if you can. I mean, I'm, I'm, it's a, it's a yes. difficult thing, but, but I, I had not thought as much about um, defense and how much fun it is to watch a shortstop in normal shortstop positioning make great plays going to, to both sides and doing that. And and one thing that is kind of interesting is even when somebody makes a great play 
in the shift, which we do see, of course. Somebody mm-hmm. makes a diving catch. Oh, of course. Uh, it doesn't feel the same though. That is true. It's it's maybe it's just because it's not as familiar. Maybe as over time it it feels. But you know because we because we saw the plays Ozzie Smith made and then the plays Cal Ripken made and then the plays that Francisco Lindor makes and it's you know you're like okay this is this makes sense to my mind and when you see somebody make an amazing diving play. You don't even know if it's the second baseman or the third baseman or the shortstop. You don't, you don't know exactly how they have it positioned. It's not exactly the same feeling, you know? Yeah. Um, I can't disagree with that. Uh, we're just, we're, we're tunneling further into this rabbit hole of <laughs> two, two old guys. You know, let's, let's talk about, let's talk about Gene Harlow and Barbara Stanwyck. <laughs> Those were some beautiful babes of cinema, weren't they? Yeah, I think it's definitely, uh, well, look, I, I think we're always trying to figure out ways to to make the game even better. I By mean, the way, I think to... everything we said is true and every yeah. bit of it is valid. Some of it just as recollection rather sure. than recommendation for how things should be at present. But it's all it's all valid. But but, you know, that that there's a portion of the audience, maybe not your audience, because we tend to cultivate. Uh, our own audience based on the subject matter that we favor. But there, there is a prevailing notion today, and it's reinforced by, by such narrow niches of media or the internet that goes something like this. If something isn't in my immediate frame of reference or personal experience, it's not worthwhile and I'm not interested in it. You know, that's yeah. when, when when I grew up, I didn't think, uh, gee, this movie was made in 1935. Why should I care about it? Right. Because it's good. <laughs> that's that's why. That's why. Or this happened before I was born or before I was interested in this. Why should I care about it? Because it's important and because it's worthwhile. That's why. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. I would say the twelve people that listen to this podcast, uh, they they want the game, they want the game to be more entertaining. Please I mean, give not, me not... their names, and I'll write to them individually <laughs> with with my that's... thanks for their forbearance and allowing us to go on like this. Exactly. No, that they know, they know, they they've they've listened to this thing. And again, you know, I and and I don't think you can you can say this enough. I think the idea is: is there a way? I mean, you cannot possibly think the game is ever perfect and you know there is the game is facing real challenges it's there's it's not dying the the despite those stories that come along it's not like it is it is something that the game is doing very well financially it is doing very well locally but it is there's it is definitely losing its place in american uh you know and one thing i also hear people say is, oh, that's not going to change things. Like one move, you know, one maneuver, whether it's, you know, if you want to get rid of the shift or if you want to uh, figure out a way to create more contact in the game or or you want to make it so that there's, a there's you know, something that starting pitchers will, will pitch longer rules. Like, oh, that's not going to bring in the kids. Well, of course not. I mean, nobody's saying any one, two, or 10 moves are going to fundamentally change the way the game goes. But what I, what I have always believed and what I, what I still very strongly believe is that somebody's hand should be on the steering wheel because I think the game will just go wherever it goes 
unless unless you, somebody is there to guide it in a sort of a larger way. And I think that's what we're talking about here. Well, here's one thing that would, if it could be accomplished, that would appeal or make the game more appealing to younger fans. Improve pace of play. Yeah, definitely. This would be true even if somehow in 1975, if somehow games were taking three hours and postseason games were taking close to four hours, that would be a problem in 1975. But yeah. now it's a much larger problem because everyone's attention span has been shortened. Not just younger people who grew up with it, even older people. They're now experiencing all of these all of these stimuli that are coming at them from the internet and from sure. all over their television screen, which now has 500 options and, and streaming and everything else. So you got to cut to the chase a little bit more. Baseball is supposed to have, I've said this so often that I apologize. I, I think probably half of all Americans have heard me say it in one place <laughs> or another, but baseball was always supposed to have a pleasing leisurely pace. It is not supposed to have a lethargic pace you know a a three two baseball game has no business taking three hours so i absolutely favor if this is what it takes i favor a 20 second pitch clock or whatever the number is that they arrive at after all their data analysis let's say a 20 second pitch clock with nobody on base you can't do it with a man on base otherwise as the clock approaches 20 the guy just takes off and you can't throw to first base but I would I would favor that. And they must do away with any access to video during the game. You know, guys that are so immersed in all kinds of data, and I understand the reason for it. That's why a guy steps out of the box after a ball one low and away. He hasn't swung the bat. He steps out of the box because he's actually saying to himself, now, what did my study tell me is different about one and oh as opposed to 0 and 1 with this pitcher in this situation. You know, at, yeah. at some yeah. at some point we need to go to the wisdom of Yogi Berra. How can you think and hit at the same time? <laughs> you know. Of course there's, right. always, there's always a counter to that because Ted Williams his contemporary was the thinking man's hitter. But you know sure. there's got there's got to be there's got to be a happy medium here. Uh, and as we said earlier Analytics may be good for gaining a competitive edge. It is not good for baseball as an entertainment product. When even someone in his 60s who has been a lifelong baseball fan does not have the patience to watch every pitch, unless he's broadcasting the game, every pitch of, of a three-hour and 20-minute regular season baseball game, final score three to two, 10 total pitchers used or more, you got a problem. Yeah. I think that's right. I, I really do. I just think it's got to, there has to be a way to find a nice balance. There just has to be a way to, to bring, you know, just some common sense type of things. And I do, I am hopeful that, you know, I know that this is something again, despite, you know, obviously when he was, when he was running the Red Sox and running the Cubs, his, his one and, and only job was to help those teams win and of be course. successful. And, and he, you know, but even during those times, Theo Epstein spent a lot of time thinking about how the game could be better. And, and by the way, we talk about old, you know, man syndrome. 
Theo Epstein believes all of the things that we've talked about. Every one of these things I have had the conversation sure. with him about. I mean, things that he would love. He wants to see more stolen bases in the game. He wants to see more triples in the game. He he wants the shift to not be as uh, pervasive as it is and, and changing. He is desperate to see more contact in the game. As a Cubs uh, president, none of those things mattered to him and shouldn't. I mean, they, they had nothing to do with what he was trying to do. And he had to find a way to to win within the confines of the way the game. He couldn't go off and say, "Okay, well, we're going to be the team that's going to you know put a lot of you know we're going to we're going to be the team that has hits with a lot of contact and and grounds into a lot of double plays and and basically does you know it, that that wasn't his job, but it is his job now. And and I think that's I think that's kind of exciting. I think that that he he's a very very smart guy, and I know he's thought a lot. Oh, absolutely, about this. he is. Oh, by the way. Uh, here's another one uh, that I have to give the credit uh, to for to Tom Verducci. One way, the most obvious way, um, you're not going to, within a game, uh, tell a manager he can't use every tool at his disposal to try to win that game. But if you limit the number of tools at his disposal, mm-hmm. it will have the same effect or maybe more. So until recently... A typical roster had 10 pitchers on it, roughly 10. Now, especially when you get late in the season and they expand the rosters, 15 sometimes, 14, 15 pitchers, especially in the American League in in a DH game where you don't have to have as deep a bench. If you limited the number of pitchers, now maybe you, you know, could have a hockey type rule where uh, you designate the pitchers. But you got to be careful there because then you would just eliminate all your starters except for tonight's right. starter, and then you'd right. load up on the same number of relievers. But if you if you limited it to ten, let's say, as an operating principle, a starting point, if you limited it to ten, then that would stem the parade of relievers during the course of a game, and you'd still have strategy. You know, you'd still have, of course you'd still have strategy. Absolutely. Well, plus, I mean, I, you know, I, if you, especially if you, you know, there are things that we are missing because, uh, because on the other side of that roster, I mean, you know, it used to be, as you say, it used to be 15 position players, 10 pitchers, and now it's 13 minimum, uh, pitchers and 12, you know, well, who are those people missing? They're the brilliant defensive shortstop that you would put in the game in the eighth and ninth inning, who might not be any fun at all to watch hit, but is a blast to watch play shortstop. Well, right? by the I way, mean, I, that, there's no place for Raphael Belliard anymore. Right. Right. Raphael Belliard <laughs> used to come into the game. You know, we're talking about World Series games for yeah. the Braves, like in the eighth or ninth inning, and very often turn in a game saving play. Yeah. That's exactly and, right. And thinking along with those possible moves, thinking along with the move, do you bunt here? Do you pinch hit here? Do you make a defensive replacement? Do you run the risk in a one-run game? Okay, you replace um, Kyle Schwarber, or uh, if we're talking about the Braves of your Ryan Klesko, uh, right. but now the game goes to extra innings, and you've outsmarted yourself because now Raphael Belliard's at the place. You know, <laughs> all that stuff is part of what makes baseball interesting. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I, I totally agree. Does this sound familiar? You've got one device that lets you catch the game live, another that lets you stream your favorite shows, you're watching sports highlights on your phone, and 
you've got your neighbor's best friend's login <laughs> for the good stuff. Well, I want to tell you about a simple way to get all that entertainment you love without the hassle and a great way to finally get your TV together. It's called Direct TV Stream, and it brings your live TV and on-demand favorites together like never before, so you can watch your favorite sports, movies, and shows all in one place. That means no more juggling remotes and no need to buy another device ever again. And the best part? There's no annual contract. Yes, no annual contract. So get rid of the clutter and the confusion and get your TV together with Direct TV Stream. You can learn more at directtv.com. That's directtv.com. Compatible device required. Content varies by package. Ready to take a trip? Hear about all the must-see places with Thrillist's new series, Get Out of Town. Brought to you by the City Advantage Platinum Select Card. Go from the East Coast to the West and everywhere in between. Like the best spot to grab a drink on the San Antonio Riverwalk. There's a million reasons to get out of town. The only hard part is choosing where to go first. Listen to Get Out of Town with Thrillist everywhere you get podcasts. Brought to you by the City Advantage Platinum Select Card. All right, before I let you go, I I sort of mentioned this a little bit earlier, uh, but I do want to get back to it. So, you know, as we get ready to start the season, uh, there are so many expectations around the game, around teams that are built off of a 60-game season that happened a year ago. You know, the the Red Sox were a disaster uh, because of a 60-game season, and the Padres are, they've arrived because of a 60-game season. And maybe they have. I mean, I'm not saying that these things are wrong. I'm curious from your own perspective, because none of us know, how much stock can we put into what happened last year? Got to be very careful. Got to be very careful. Uh, does Jose Altuve's 60-game regular season right. indicate something? Well, stop right there because he actually was good in the postseason. He was terrific mm-hmm. in the postseason. Um, look, even a 60-game stretch in baseball, a team could have a 60-game stretch. You don't yeah. have to look very far. Look at what the Nats were um, under 500 at some point, like 50 games into oh, the season 19, in 2019. 19 and 30, right? Yeah, yeah something like that. 19 yeah. and 31, something like that. Yeah. And then yeah. they go on to win the World Series. There are always going to be chunks in a baseball season that aren't typical of what the final stats or a team's final record turns out to be. Now, 60 is a large chunk, grant you, but this is baseball. So it's not definitive. Do we see enough of, of Tatis Jr.? Uh, to know, <laughs> yeah, 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 we know, Ab- we know, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. But, but is this definitive of other players? No, and I think that people within baseball know that. That's why they're scratching their heads. They're trying to get a handle on it. That's why this spring training is unlike any other, and why it's so important. But when you use the Red Sox as an example, keep in mind in 2019, the Red Sox had a dreary season. Uh, sure. There was something going wrong there. And that outfield that we thought was going to be a generational outfield, those three B's of Benintendi, Bradley, and especially Betts, they're all gone now. Amazing. They're Amazing. all gone. You know, so. Yeah. Yeah. I, look, I don't, I don't know that there's any specific example of, you know, I mean, you mentioned uh, Altuve. There are several players that were pretty bad uh, for 60 games. And you think, what is that? 
matter? Does that count? I mean, look, they could have been really bad for the first 60 games of a season and ended up winning the MVP. I mean, it's not, you know, that that's, that's how long a real season is. Uh, And there were plenty of players that were like really good for 60 games. You're like, Oh, okay. Well that person has arrived and we don't really know. I, I just think that almost every story I read or story I see on, on, you know, it all plays off of last year because that's what we do. And it's all we have to work with, particularly considering there were no minor leagues last year. So there's no, there's no like phenom type players that, you know, coming off of, uh, off of amazing minor league seasons to talk about. Um, but I feel like it's a trap. I feel like, I feel like this year might be a complete surprise on some levels I mean, look, I, I, the Dodgers are going to be great. I mean, I'm not, there's certain obvious things. The Yankees are going to be great. The Dodgers are going to be great. I think the Padres, particularly what they've done during this off season, they seem like they're going to be really, really good. Atlanta looks fantastic. I mean, there are things we do know, but I also would not be surprised if there's a lot of stuff that we think we know, but we're just being completely fooled by a very, very short, uh, and, and somewhat bizarre season, not somewhat entirely bizarre season, but that was a given last year we knew that yeah even with the playoff structure that we were willing to accept a lot of circumstances we were willing to accept we knew that that last year was going to be a one-off but it's not a one-off in this sense it's affecting uh our judgments uh going into 2021 and and we're going to have a lot of misjudgments coming out of that because the data in in a data obsessed um era the data is incomplete yeah yeah, it's small sample size. I mean, it, it really is. And, and it's going to be, I think it's going to be interesting from that perspective. I, you know, there, I think there's going to be, there are going to be some, some surprises that shouldn't necessarily be surprises, but they are because we were, we're putting some of us, uh, including myself, are putting too much stock in uh, something that we saw last year. And that's just yep. sort of the way it is. That's just sort of the way it is. So do you have any, you know, early feelings about like, I mean, I, you've, you've got to be pretty excited about this Dodgers team. I mean, it's that's seven starters for that Dodgers team that might be number one starters for other teams. Oh yeah. They, they've got a chance to be a generational team, yeah. but I'm not even sure what that means anymore because it's very hard to keep the true core of the team together for as long as right. we saw teams stay together, even in the nineties. But they've got a chance to, to be a team that's talked about uh, for several seasons, I guess, a several season chunk as, as one of the better teams in recent memory. What's also interesting is you look at the divisions. Uh, Would you rather be the Cardinals or the Brewers uh, in the central, as opposed to uh, the best team in the national league East? Yeah. The, The winner of the national league East might not win 90 games. They'll be beating each other up. The division is so good from top to bottom. If we think that the Marlins are at least pretty good off again, a very small sample that saw them make the playoffs in 2020. Whereas taking nothing away from the Cardinals who in my mind and by the consensus are the favorite in the central. I don't know that the Cardinals would be the favorites in the East and certainly not in the West in the national league. So you know, with three divisions and multiple wild cards, it's where you're situated uh, as much as how good you are. Well, and and that's another element of this Dodgers team that I think is going to be very interesting to see. I I don't normally care about uh, about uh, 
you know, the odds that people put on things. I'm not a, I don't bet, but uh, I saw there was an over under on the, on the Dodgers for, I think it was 105 wins or 106 wins. And I thought to myself, well, that's, that's, that's a weird bet. I mean, they all are, but that's a weird bet in today's environment because are the Dodgers good enough to win more than 106 games? Absolutely. They, they, the, with the talent on that team, uh, and even though they're, you know, the Padres are there to, 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 to match up the rest of that division, they could beat up pretty good. 106 wins feels to me like, oh yeah, there's no question. Do they care? Do they want to win 106 games? I mean, it, you know, that's the, because of the way that the postseason is and, and where everything is focused so much in the postseason, it's going to be about lining up their, their rotation and staying healthy. I mean, it's, the game is different to the point where, you know, winning that many games, I think they, they will, they can and will perhaps because they're that good, but yeah. there's no need to, there's no need to anymore. Well, that brings me to what perhaps is our last point here, which is why baseball has got to be very careful about how it expands the postseason. It's Agreed. inevitable that the postseason will be further expanded. But what baseball has to recognize is that there has to be a balance between the unique nature of a baseball season, which is at least twice as long as any other sport and 10 times as long as football, the, the value, the meaning, and the drama that you want to have within a pennant race and expanding the postseason. They're going to do it and they should do it because in the modern era, it's very important to have more postseason television opportunities and revenue and television likes elimination games so that extra round is important it was better by the way to have two wild cards than to have one because it created at least some discernible distinction important yes. distinction between winning the division and being the wild card but based on what you just said about the dodgers if the proposal that was floated a year ago before COVID and before we lost track of all of it, if that's in place, then what they are saying is you're going to have four wild cards, but two of the three division winners are going to be thrown in with the wild cards to play yeah. a best two out of three series. And only the division winner with the best record would get a buy. Now think about the jeopardy there. We know that it's baseball. We know that during the course of a season, a team that wins 105 games could very well lose two out of three at home sure. to a team that's not that's not even a 500 team. It happens all the time, and except in the postseason, no one even bats an eye. And the last time we played a full regular season, 2019, all three division winners in the American League won more than 100 games. Are you going to penalize them by throwing them into that kind of crapshoot? Now, you could right. say that the one-off wildcard game as it now exists is a crapshoot but a it's an exciting crapshoot and b if you did not win your division even if you won 100 games and the best team in your division won 101 that's what the divisional race and the long season is about not right. just the merit of prevailing but the drama of having it mean something that's why if two teams tie for the division title back in the old days or for the pennant playing a one game or a two out of three to decide that makes sense 
because you played to a legitimate dead heat over 154 or 162. But under the present circumstances, to take someone who's won the division and throw them into that mix really undermines everything that a baseball season is supposed to be about. Whereas, even if you're the second best team in the best division, and therefore arguably better than the division winner in the other two divisions, if you didn't win your division, that's what the season was about. So it makes perfect sense that you're going to have to roll the dice in the wild card round. But it doesn't make sense to include division winners in that wild card round. Now, if you if you want me to exhaust you, I can give you a better idea. But maybe we should save that for a future podcast. We could save that for future podcast. I am I, but although I want to hear it because I well, you have I my think, phone number, so yes. <laughs> well, but I honestly think there are really cool ways that it can be done. I I mean that is something that I'm not I you know I've I've said on this podcast I'm a I'm a regular season person. I, I I love the regular season. I'm not as crazy about bait playoffs, but I gave up that fight a long time ago. I know people love playoffs and, and yeah. that's where the game is going. And so to me, hey, if we're going to do it, do, let's do it in a really cool way where there is still a tremendous uh, uh, emphasis for the Dodgers to beat the Padres and win the division. Okay. They've got to, they've got to do what they need to do. That's first and foremost, they've got to win the division because the penalty will be severe enough if they don't. And, and, and and by the way, Joe, if, if that's the case, then it isn't just the meaning and the merit of being best over the long season. It's the drama of it. If it doesn't matter all that much, then the drama of a Padre Dodger series or a Cub Cardinal series or a Yankee Red Sox series, not only in September, but in June or July. If, if, if fans can't see how this might impact the way it's going to shake out in October, then it's going to mean less. There's going to be less drama attached to those games and therefore less interest. So, all right. I will not leave you hanging. I'm going to give it to you as quickly as I possibly can. And I'm going to give credit to Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner of the White Sox, because that's where I first heard it. You expand the playoffs to include four wild cards. So now you have seven playoff teams in each league, 14 total. But in the wild card round, one plays four, two plays three. Or if you really want to, this was an idea that was thrown out there uh, because they thought somehow they could make baseball resemble uh, the selection show for the NCAA tournament, which doesn't right. make much sense. But in this case, it wouldn't do any harm if you wanted to let the number one wild card select what team it played, which might right. be based on if that team, one team or another, had to go right to the wire and use their best pitcher. You right. might you might choose the team that is the lesser team, but also has the lesser starter in this particular or the better team. I'm sorry. You might choose to play the better team, but with the lesser starter, there could be a little strategy there. But either way. The first, the one plays the four or whatever team it selects. The other two teams play. They're one game knockouts. The two survivors play each other. Right there, yeah. you're guaranteed to have six elimination games in baseball, three in each league. All right. It's over quickly. You could, if you wanted to, play them at three designated sites. So there's no chance of weather delays. You could do that. I wouldn't be right. in favor of that because I like the home field feel to it sure but nonetheless if you wouldn't keep the division winners waiting around 
so long that they'd get rusty, but they would have the extra advantage of having enough time if they had to go to the wire to secure their position to get their pitching in order. Now, by definition, the team that emerges from the wildcard round and becomes the fourth participant in the division series round, they've used, especially in modern baseball, they've used a lot of pitching to win those two yeah. games. Yeah. And now they go on the road to the home field of the team, the division winner that has the best record of the three division winners. Now, if you want more postseason inventory, I've never thought it made much sense for the only round, the first after the wild card, that includes the wild card and the third best division winner to be a best of five when the next two are going to be best of seven. We right. know that the best team does not always win. That's part of the charm of baseball. That's part of the charm of the 88 Dodgers beating the 88 Oakland A's. But sure. you don't, you don't want to you want to advantage, especially in an expanded playoff situation, you want to advantage the best regular season teams as much as you legitimately can. So while we also know that home field is not a guarantee, as witnessed that in 2019, the road team won every World Series game, we still think it's a small advantage. So sure. you could play best of seven in the division series. And if people worry about the World Series going into November, Cut the regular season back to 156, not the old 154, wow. but 156, which is one three-game home series for each team, okay? And the best of seven division round, the wild card team, when it plays the best division winner, that is not the standard 2-3-2. It's 2-2-3, two, two, okay? Ah. Whereas yep. the second and third best division winners play your classic 2-3-2. Two, and if the wild card survives and beats the best team, now they're on equal footing. Now the LCS is a 2-3-2 two, two, if you want it to be that way. And the World Series right. is just as it always has been. Now, what have you done there? You've modernized, but you've also, in the process, you've actually further rewarded and further placed emphasis on the regular season. It's a nod toward the traditional and the modern simultaneously. Yeah, I, I like it. I like it a lot. I and I like the idea of a of a final four. I think there's a way you could play that up pretty big with the, you know, I mean this is you could you could really make it a Saturday Monday if you wanted to or something like that, you know, the way that they've got it set up. I mean, it's look, I think I think that's really cool and and my I I hope they they show the imagination uh to do something really cool like that that okay, it expands the playoffs, more teams have a chance. Uh, gets all of those things that I think people want, but at the same time, not only cherishes the regular season, but brings some drama back in because you want to be the number one seed in that scenario. It, it's you are getting advantages on right. multiple levels, and and you should, and you absolutely right. should. Look, every team that gets into the postseason, this is the the essence of sports. The 16 seed has a chance to right. win the NCAA tournament in theory, but ev so every team should have a chance. But if you're going to play a long regular season, every team should not have an equal chance. Yeah. The wild yeah. card teams, including if it's the fourth wild card that went went 82 and 80. All right. They they have a chance, but they should, by definition, have a steeper hill to climb. And the team that achieved more during the regular season should not have any guarantee, but it should have a lesser hill to climb. Yeah, yeah I love it. I like it.
All right, we figured it out. We've solved all of baseball's problems. There this you have it. it. This is all we we'll just we're gonna just put this in a at a time capsule, give it to Theo Epstein, and we're done. We're, and the, we're, and we're there's, just... there's going to be some kind of trophy which Joe Posnanski <laughs> will commission to anyone who can prove that he or she actually listened to this entire podcast. <laughs> we we've we've tried this with the trophy before, and then a stunning number of people uh listened and got to the very we used to we used to put code words at the end of the podcast to see if people really got to the end so uh you know i i'll I'll say this our listeners they're mighty they 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 uh they they somehow survived this whole thing hats off to all of them (laughs) that's exactly right bob you're the greatest thank you so much all right joe thanks a lot talk soon see ya Today's episode is sponsored by the NBA and their quest to advance the game of basketball, grow the community, and impact culture. The league celebrates its teams, players, and fans across the past, present, and future as part of the 75th anniversary season. That's game highlights pivotal moments on court and beyond. From iconic plays in arenas to the impact players have in communities, that's the NBA, that's game. It's like game five of the NBA Finals where I was lucky enough to be there. Bucks Suns in Milwaukee. I'm sitting kitty corner from Giannis Antetokounmpo as he rises up for that incredible alley-oop. Drew Holiday having stolen the ball from Devin Booker on the other side, found Giannis in transition. Incredible stuff. That's the NBA. That's game. This is more than just basketball. It's what connects us all and keeps us coming back for more. That's the NBA. That's game.